everyone. Welcome to Mad Hat Economics Podcast. Today we have our first guest for this year, Mr. Dan Bennett. He is the Consulting Director at Ogilvy Consulting's Behavioral Science Practice. Dan has worked on over 80 of the world's major brands and organizations, and he believes in the creative application of insights from behavioral science to solve some of today's most interesting problems. Welcome, Dan. We also have with us our very own Professor David Just from the Dyson School. So today we are going to be talking about Dan's journey into behavioral science, what got him interested, and how he applies behavioral, behavioral science creatively in business. So my first question to Dan is, what got you interested in behavioral science? And what do you find most fascinating about this field? Well, it's one of those things where there's kind of a clever answer and then the real answer. And the clever answer is, who doesn't find people fascinating? Who doesn't want to know why they do or why they don't do um, their, their behaviours? And they would, they would like to. But the real answer is that I initially wanted to study philosophy and um, with a dyslexic brain ticked the wrong box at my A-levels and did psychology by accident. And about six weeks in, realised that I wasn't doing philosophy and I wasn't doing psychology. But in fact, it was absolutely fascinating and um and and to learn um all around uh people's human psychology i think becomes quite addictive after a while because once you find out how a little bit about why people um are doing what what they're doing you realize how much you don't know so so what did you how did you feel when you sat in the first few psychology classes instead of philosophy well, I guess at that point, I didn't actually know that I wasn't in the philosophy classes. And so it was all a bit of a revelation. Um, but I remember just thinking that, um, that there's a whole world out there about understanding our brain. I think someone told me, the first professor I had told me the fact that there are more connections between the cells in your brain than there are known stars in the galaxy. And just going, wow, yeah, like if you if you go to a car mechanic, they know how the engine works. If you go to a... Um, if you go to a hearing expert, they tell you how the ear works. If you go to a psychologist, they know a bit about how the brain works, but there's a lot left to discover. And then I realized actually that everything that people talk about in pubs and bars is psychology, just without a formal framework behind it. And so I guess I very quickly understood that what I'd always found fascinating had a, had a framework behind it and a method to, to further understand. And it got to the point of my... And I had to make a decision whether I wanted to go through the, the traditional routes, clinical psychologist, occupational psychologist, and never really found anything that was exciting me. And at that time, I found out about a man called Rory Sutherland, who has since become uh, my boss, essentially, the big boss, um, <laughs> who, um, who talks all about using behavioral science and marketing. And I remember just thinking how exciting it would be to take what I'd learned in, in the academic setting and really figure out how to apply that into kind of the quote brackets, the real world. Because, and the thing I always think about is this, a lot of people might think it's really boring to think why it is that someone buys a certain type of hairdryer. And if you think about it for five seconds, it's a really boring question. But if you think about that question for a month, it becomes incredibly interesting. <laughs> so it's that type of thing where actually the more you think about the mundane things, actually the, the more fascinating um, it gets. It, it's funny how those puzzles really start to come out the more you think about these things. And, and it's really those puzzles that seem to draw a lot of people into this field. The things that we don't know and, and that seem to be extremely counterintuitive once you start getting into it. Totally. Yeah, a big thing um, 
uh, Rory's been saying is around overcome your false assumptions um, because that'll be the most creatively liberating thing you can do. You can solve a lot more problems once you realize what you don't know. And that almost kind of like trimming the bush of overconfidence. You can really start to come up with some new and interesting um, insights. I think that's one of the most amazing things about working in businesses. There are a lot of puzzles out there um, to be solved. And um, there are not that many people with a psychological um, X-ray vision that can look at them and, and get some new and interesting answers. So it's, it's a really exciting field right now. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to be in this uh, this behavioral unit at Ogilvy. It's just sort of this this powerhouse in marketing. What what uh, what do you do? <laughs> what do we do? So we're quite unique. So um, eight years ago, we started our behavioral science practice within Ogilvy. Um, Ogilvy being a very large, uh, very creative organization that essentially makes communications around the world. So. Um, uh, and David Ogilvy, our founder, uh, many decades ago, started the business on Madison Avenue. You know, real, real, real traditional story there of, of true advertising. And um, and it always has been quite an academic institution, really values insight. And so um, when Rory got to the point where um, he, I think actually Rory was ill for a week, and he started to read books on just wider, wider books than he normally would, and realizing that um, we'd be absolutely deranged should we not seek to improve what we do without references to the massive advances currently being made in the social sciences. Um, there is so much to there. There are kind of brother sister fields that need to come back together. Um, and so really by starting a, um, a behavioral science practice within an advertising agency um, was really the ambition to, to try and stick more of that back in there. So, you know, when you watch Mad Men, you'll realize as a, there was always used to be a psychologist in the agency, um, you know, um, sprouting out insights along the way um, to, to, to sharpen the communications. And that kind of died out, died out through um, books like The Hidden Persuaders as kind of that sus suspicion that psychology may be manipulation at a certain level, um, uh, especially in the area that, that that was happening. So they died out. And behavioral science is a way of kind of positively bringing back a lot of that a lot of the massive advances that have been made in the social sciences in a way that's really constructive to and also to remind the advertising industry that it's there to change behavior as well as it is to change attitudes because it can often uh, aim for that. So we are a team within the, within the agency that really helps. On the one hand, we help to strengthen the communications and make sure that the communications create impact. And on the other hand, we get handed these amazing sticky problems that um that that, that communi traditional communications haven't managed to solve yet so there's, there's been this influx then of of uh behavioral scientists in in the in this this marketing organization it's got to be exciting to see um what, what sort of things are, are you working on do you have some examples yeah so i mean over our eight years we've worked with everyone from the british army to um, airports to um, traditional FM fast-moving consumer goods products like Coca-Cola and Unilever and um, and working on changing consumer behaviors with Facebook to um, changing the services that are made to also changing the behaviors that staff do in, internally in organizations There's a lot of behaviors to be changed there um, one of my favorite examples and it you know, hasn't been beaten yet um, was our time working in a London airport and the airport came to us and said um, really quite smartly saying, we know that you're known for your kind of communication skills, but actually 
um, we want to take you for your creative problem solving skills. We don't want to make a campaign. We just have this problem that we haven't been able to be solved for the past 10 years. So, and you'll, you'll have recognized it yourself a lot. So when you go through the security gate, you'll know that there's a lot of kind of quite complex instructions around how you get your liquids or how you don't get your liquids through security. And, um, and because of um, our passengers getting a lot of these rules wrong, it creates a lot of costs for the airport. So they have to pay more security agents uh, to do more checks and that creates longer queues and the longer people are in queues, the less time they spend their duty free. You can see how these, these, these costs compound. If only you could solve the problem of getting people to pack their liquids correctly when they go through security, then you're having a good time. Um, and really interestingly, um, 10 years of experimentation by the airport itself hadn't managed to, to kind of really look into this um, into this problem. The interesting thing here was um, they tried to solve it without counting the data. So actually, when you ask security agents, um, it's quite funny really, when you ask security agents why they're looking to, uh, why there's a the problem, they'll say, well, it's always the French and the Italians. You know, they're the ones I remember the most. It's the French and the Italians that don't do it right. <laughs> and yet when we, yeah. when we, we send people in and we get people uh, uh, random different shifts to count lots and lots of passengers and count what's gone wrong. Is it that they don't know the rules? Is it they don't remember the rules? Or is it that they don't care about the rules? And we survey all these people and we get all these people through and you basically find no trends whatsoever with nationalities. There is no trend towards French and Italian people not getting the liquid um, uh, rejection rules correct. Um, turns out what it is is um, when, you, when uh, a security agent uh, is, is asked to recall uh, what trends they see, they actually recall the people that they remember the most because actually when you look at how French and Italian, Italians on, on the whole react to getting pulled over, they, they communicate a little bit more kind of um, vibrantly so they're more easily remembered. And that problem of not counting the data correctly and not actually finding out what the actual problem is led the airport to translate all of its signage pre-security into those two languages to think that that would solve the problem. It's interesting that it didn't, but since we've been able to go in and kind of look at some other things and, do, and look at lane by lane testing um, to really do the real psychological job that it needs to be done. Yeah, I've, I've, I've wondered how often, you know, effects like that might have caused some sort of profiling problems. I mean, it's, we hear about profiling very often, but this seems to be something that would be hard to overcome in, in the you know, on the side of setting the policy, right? Because unless we use the data and use it rigorously, we can become so easily subject to that sort of judgment bias. Totally. And part of this is like um, the, the most amazing thing that the, the field of psychology brings to the world is obviously the experimental method. It's also kind of the, the commitment to the experimental method too, because it's very easy to look at um, observation and testing and think it's, it's just it's too labor intensive or it's it's too labor uh, it's going to take too long but actually by not skipping the steps we were able to get a much finer read and we, we, we often say that with behavior change that the devil is in the details usually it's about we'll do a kind of a, a two to four week immersion depending on the size of the problem we're looking at and usually it's something it's 30 seconds or something that comes in randomly when we're sending a team of three in that will be the thing that clinches the whole project. So it is that kind of commitment to the experimental process that brings that insight to get the right behavior change.
That's great. So, so how do you, I, I guess, you know, how, what is the process of sort of taking the, the data, once you get that data at the airport, for example, how do you get from that to uh, here's, here's an intervention that actually will work, right? I mean, the, the translated signs are not going to do anything good, clearly, but what, what will work? Yeah, and it's um, and it's something that's evolved over the years with us. We um, we really value two lenses, and one of them is the behavioural science lens. Um, so kind of really like a foundation of behavioural science will give us all the ingredients we need to ask all the interesting questions. It is very basic to us. Behavioural science offers us the chance to ask new and interesting questions to throw up new and interesting answers. Um, the second lens we value is the power of creativity and lateral thinking and lateral stimulus in workshops to come up with new and interesting ideas. So once we've got a defined um, behavioral brief and some behavioral barriers that we've used from different kind of models and frameworks and principles that we use, the really interesting thing that we're looking at and the past couple of years has thrown up some really interesting things is lateral category analysis. So every problem in the world has been solved, it just hasn't been solved in the category that you're looking at, it's kind of the working theory. So if we're looking, so one of the projects we did was looking at adult diapers. So how do you reduce the stigma around a product which can dramatically increase people's well-being and livelihoods if they felt more comfortable wearing the product they need to wear and if society let them wear it a lot more comfortably. So looking at what we call the language of leakage, we're able to look at um, that actually the, the, the language that was on the pack of diapers actually changed how you felt about the product. So whether you called it bladder strength or for bladder weakness, changed how you felt about putting the product on. And actually by looking at, um, by knowing that the psychological barrier we are looking at here, the psychological lens tells us this is a stigma problem, even though the rest of the, that category hadn't really solved it in, 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 in a final way, um, we were able to look at how other industries had overcome stigma and look at their techniques to then borrow them into our category, if that makes sense. So we were able to look at how do, if you think about Scientologists, what are the processes that they have in their sign-up procedures that allow you to yourself to overcome the stigma of joining a group um, that is generally stigmatized in society, you can say, um, and, and then borrowing those strategies across. Uh, some really interesting things that mental, mental health leaps that have been made and, and how we talk about mental health. So um, uh, it's not a depressed person, it's a person who has depression. So there's that kind of decoupling strategy there to say that it's, it's not me, it's, it's, it's a thing that's attached to me, but it's not me myself. And we were able to look at kind of um, then taking that technique into some of the bladder, bladder strength language that we put on the packaging at the end and, and found some really interesting results. So that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, so for our, our listeners who may have noticed some, some bit of difference in, in the way this, uh, this podcast is working relative to others, because of uh, COVID-19 restrictions, we're all on different sites and, and doing this in relative isolation. Um, I, I, I would think there'd be a lot of messages coming out of particularly the, the types of things you're talking about now that might have to do with with uh, you know what government messaging might be or should be surrounding something like this uh, this pandemic. Yeah, it's it's a it's a lively time for behavioral scientists. I think <laughs> in this in this situation we find ourselves. One of the interesting things um, it's certainly been communicated in the UK. I don't know how global it's gone. Um, is the idea around um, how do you 
make it easy for people to know how long to wash your hands for. So I think the, the advice that's been given in the UK is, is 20 seconds. But obviously 20 seconds, unless you're doing kind of one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, which you're not likely to do you know, five times a day, um, there is a more fun way to doing it. So I think the UK government's advice was sing happy birthday twice while you're washing your hands. And I think Gloria Gaynor has since come out saying there's a, there's a chorus in one of her songs that is, is also ideal um, for 20 seconds as well. So I think there is some kind of really nice behavioural, creative techniques in the messaging that is, uh, you know, help people anchor how long they need to wash, be washing their hands for. Very good. I'll be singing happy birthday every day now. I, I, uh, I was listening to a clip earlier today of, of Norm MacDonald complaining about having to wash his hands for three hours every day now. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're singing I Will Survive while you're doing it, it's probably not that bad. Very good. Very good. I, so, um, so do you have any other sort of interesting examples of how, you know, you talked about creativity being sort of the key to this process. Do you have any good examples of, of how that creativity plays out? Yeah, I'll talk to you about a, um, this one might seem less creative. I think a lot of people think about creativity as kind of the final coloring in piece at the end. Um, but this is one of my favorite cases that we've worked on in the past couple of years. It's a, it's a charity and um, it's a UK based charity. It's called Christian Aid. And essentially what happens is there is a, a Christian aid week um, where they basically collect you know, the majority of their donations for that year. All their activity happens throughout the year, but this week is really the one um, that, that, that brings in the, in the cash. And um, sadly, over the years, it's kind of declined and declined and declined as, you know, money spreads thin, money disappears, and you know how the story goes. Um, so we're working with Christian Aid to go, okay, so what happens every year is they deliver, uh, they have a load of really nice people that deliver envelopes, Christian Aid envelopes, um, through people's letterboxes on a Monday. And the idea is that you're kind of, kind of expected to put your cash um, in the envelope day by day until it's collected on the Friday. And, um, and it's collected, kind of hand collected by a volunteer at the end. And, uh, and then they count it all up. And obviously they do this across the UK. So, um, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of, of envelopes go out. And we were able to take a small sample of this and test out um, a bunch of uh, different envelopes. And, um, and I'd really like to see um, which envelopes you guys might think um, would be the most successful and maybe the least successful. Um, so I'll tell you about a couple that, that we tried. So on one of the envelopes, and you can imagine that they all basically have um, general charity information about where the cause is going and, and how the money's spent and all that good stuff. But the behavioral science we added in was, um, on the first one it was, uh, we added in kind of the, the labor illusion, the kind of hand-delivered hand stamp, so hand-delivered by a local volunteer, just so that people could see that um, a real person has delivered this and therefore kind of adding that expectation that you shouldn't really let that person down. The second one was uh, scarcity. So driving urgency. So we put on the envelope, we're collecting donations this week only. The third one, we included uh, cognitive ease. So we just signaled that it was an appeal because these envelopes can get quite busy. So we just in big letters on a big banner, we put appeal donation envelope. So just when it was kind of, when you emptied your, your mailbox that you would, you'd be able to see this one quite clearly. So the fourth one was, um, we turned the envelope, which was a horizontal envelope, we turned it to be a portrait envelope. Uh, the fifth one, 
um, we added what we have in the UK, which is known as gift aid. So basically, if you put in four dollars, um, the government will put in an extra twenty-five dollars for you, a twenty-five percent. So you get an extra dollar in there. So you put in more money for free. And then the final envelope was costly signalling. So we basically made the envelope slightly thicker. And if you know your paper, it basically went from a ninety GSM to 150 GSM. So it felt more like cardboard than paper, the envelope. And I'd love to think, I'd love to ask you what, which one you feel, uh, based on the psychology, might have worked the hardest. I, I, my initial impression is it would, it would be the in-person delivery, that, uh, that having a physical person there would, uh, would make a big difference in how people felt about it. I, I think it would be um, the costly signaling costly signaling. That is a very good set of answers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, yes, um, very good, very good psychological knowledge there. So it was in fact the labor illusion increased donations by 13%. So simply by putting on um, uh, a piece of imagery basically, which is about two inches by two inches, increased donations by 13%. The scarcity reduced um, donations by 19 percent uh, wow. which is shocking <laughs> to us um, because scarcity is the thing that people bound around as the principle that's kind of it's a bit it's a bit kind of the you know the, the one that would survive a nuclear war it's the most most common one we spoke to booking.com once and we said to their persuasion team and we said if you could only use one principle what would it be and they said it would be scarcity every single time because you know kind of five rooms left at this price is the thing that basically powers the website so um really strong but not in this case um, the where we just wrote appeal uh, and said it was a donation envelope on, on the banner on the side increased donations by 10% so just saying that it's an appeal um, makes more people put money in um, turning the envelope portrait increased this is the winning one increased um, donations by 17% um, and we're not entirely sure why um, it may be that it feels more safe to put more money in into a vertical envelope than a horizontal envelope. Maybe it feels you've got that depth and that relativity, so you feel you need to fill it up more. Um, but again, 17% increase. I, I wonder how much of that is, is, you know, an increase in number of people who give versus the amount that they put in. Because um, I, I, could, I could almost see having that portrait sort of gets people curious and, and makes them more likely to give it all where where maybe it's, it doesn't have a lot to do with the margin but i i don't know it's a little bit of little bit of both so there is increases in both the dominant one was that it was filled out more frequently by more people um okay. so it's uh it may be that that one yeah whether there's, there's a safety factor to it or whether there's a, that feels it's um feels like it has uh it's deeper. I think. We're, we're, yeah, I think it's more like the physical presentation of it uh, that it looks like you know you're slipping money into an envelope and the shape is sort of long, like a note. Yeah, I guess. You know, interestingly, um, I'll tell you about the final two, and that will add to that conversation. So um, the gift aid one. So the part where basically you would get free money added into your your envelope as a result of just filling out a few details. Um, reduced donations by 46%. And gift aid is a thing that is universal on basically all of UK um, charity donation forms. That's um, really so it interesting. May more back, yeah. More money um, <laughs> could actually mean um, that, we're, um, that we're, they're not giving as much. 
So, so you do a, a fair amount of work internationally. I, I, I'm interested to know, is it different when you start working across different cultures? Or do you find examples where, where things play out in very different ways because it's, it's different culturally? Yeah, we've certainly had some some different some interesting results there. We've had um, uh, there was a there was a really interesting idea when we were working in a Indian call center. So we'd just been to do a project in the US, and it was all around kind of like internal motivation of teams. So the, the team there had donate, uh, generated lots of different ideas on um, on how they can best motivate uh, the best salesperson. One of those ideas was that the person who'd sold the most that week would basically get to sit on the most amazing chair in the office. It was basically a throne, <laughs> a digital throne, where you would you'd get you'd feel the kind of the biggest person in the room, and you get a lot, a lot of kudos during the week for doing that. The kind of the two weeks later, when we ran a very similar workshop in the in the call center in India, um, I just suggested the idea of this um, incredible chair that would make you feel brilliant and a cut above the rest. And instantly the whole room went very silent and then faces dropped. <laughs> so I'm very concerned about maybe I'd said something incredibly wrong. Um, it turns out it just culturally didn't fit. And um, the idea of, of, um, of being uh, seen as being higher than, than a person around them um, was not as appealing as it was when we were doing the same workshop in the US. Huh. <laughs> very good. I, so, um, you know, just sort of, Wrapping up, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to know, given your long sort of practical experience, um, you know, we, we have a lot of people who listen to this who are, are sort of interested in careers in behavioral economics uh, in one way or another. I, what do you think maybe we're overemphasizing and what are we underemphasizing? What are we, where are we getting it wrong? I think that behavioral science is going in a place where Maybe for the past decade, the um, practitioners have we've, we've really focused on painting by numbers. So we've really taken the principles and we've executed them in tests, and then we've basically found out which principles are most powerful in which contexts. And there's plenty more work to be done in that space for sure. Kind of what we might call behaviorally tidying up the world, um, a bit like the Christian Aid envelopes where you were basically taking the principles and executing them in the real world. And we'll find lots of examples out there of that, but. What seems to be evolving is the types of problems that are coming through our doors now and tend to be kind of stickier problems with less obvious answers. Um, and therefore, we kind of need more lateral solutions that are sparked by imagination and a little bit of luck as well. Um, it's, it's really more around the complexity of the problem that's changing. So one of the um, good examples of this would be, uh, and a very relevant example for right now, would be the project we did around hand washing. So it was a... Um, it was a food processing plant in South America. We actually thought it was going to be a chocolate, we were told it was going to be a chocolate factory. So we were thought we were on an airplane to South America to basically meet kind of the Willy Wonka of, of South America. And it turns out that there was a Google translation error and we were actually going straight to a, a food processing plant into the pig abattoir. So kind of landing quite jet lagged, we were off straight to the kill zone and it was all a bit of a shock. <laughs> and, um, and the challenge there was, People are processing um, food and, and touching raw meat with their hands all day. Um, you would think that people then wash their hands on the way in and wash their hands on the way out, but it's simply human nature um, that we don't do that. And you know, for, again, it was a similar to the to the airport study where, for decades, traditional means and all the kind of the rational 
explanations you can think of had been tested. And so what we weren't able to do in that situation is paint by numbers. We weren't able to go through the list of behavioural biases we knew about and, and come up with ideas against them and test different ones. And we had to use kind of different lateral solutions and, and, um, and more of the creative process to get there. Um, and the idea that we came up was um, we basically created a stamp and it was a special stamp with a, with a sticky ink that we had made. And it was sticky enough that it took the same amount of time uh, to wash off is the time that you legally had to wash your hands for. So mm. as people entered the hand washing bay, the hand was was stamped with this sticky ink and then they would have to rub it off and you would then see um, that their hands were clean. And um, overnight we got uh, results of a 63% reduction in dirty hands. And um, after measuring it over, over several uh, months, we actually found that you could take the stamp away after six weeks and the habit still continued. You had to introduce it with new staff, of course, who hadn't been through this, this habit changing process. Um, but by stamping hands, we were able to reduce the incidences of dirty hands, which of course has huge commercial effects. But that's, I think, what, what, what the industry is gonna move further towards as we run out of the opportunities to paint by numbers. It's gonna be um, lateral, lateral solutions um, to behavioral problems. So we need more creative thinkers. We need people who are willing to, to get their hands dirty and find new phenomena and, and not just technicians who can um, wrote, apply what they learn, right? Totally, yeah. The science is going to allow us to be creative and, and being creative can then feed the science because we're going to learn lots more things as long as we're testing. Um, and I think that's the most exciting thing right now, which, which is it becomes like a recycling circle rather than just the science fueling the creativity. Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Daniel Bennett. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. We are indeed very appreciative of your time.